Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded during the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. Our guest today is Dr. Babak Sarani. He is a critical care trauma surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is an assistant professor of surgery and the medical director of the surgical rapid response team, also at the hospital for the University of Pennsylvania. I had an opportunity to meet uh, Dr. Sarani when I was taking the Fundamentals of Disaster Management course at the University of Pennsylvania, and I thought he would make a fantastic guest here as part of the podcast because of his tremendous focus on critical care education and sharing my passion to educate the world in terms of critical care. And I was very excited because this would be an opportunity to learn a little bit more about some of the nuts and bolts of both the FCCS course and the Fundamentals of Disaster Management course, uh, perhaps how to set one up at your hospital. Uh, I'd like to begin, Dr. Sarani, if I could, by hearing a little bit about your background, uh, how you ended up in critical care, and what your particular role is clinically at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, well, thank you for the invitation to speak. I've been at the University of Pennsylvania for uh, about six years now, uh, and I started there following completion of my training in uh, trauma and critical care. What initially attracted me to the field of uh, critical care was really a love for physiology and a understanding of medicine. But I also, at my core, enjoyed surgery and operating quite a bit. And the field that allows both of those disciplines to be integrated really is trauma surgery, uh, which comes part and parcel with uh, critical care and the need to understand uh, physiologic deterioration quickly. And so... Um we were discussing this before, but is it that you're on as the trauma surgeon for a week and then you're on as the ICU attending for a week? Or, and is it only in the trauma ICU? Maybe if you could spend a few minutes talking about that. Sure, absolutely. Um, so yes, <laughs> we, uh, we are on for uh, trauma for about a week at a time, covering uh, trauma uh, overnight admissions uh, for 12 hours at a time. So it's a kind of a complicated model we set up. But outside of that, we also cover the general surgical intensive care unit, which includes trauma, but also includes all other aspects of general surgery and obstetrics and gynecology for a week at a time. So we essentially rotate onto service and off service, providing a really nice mix of medicine and surgery. And uh, you know, as soon as you get tired of one, inevitably the week is over and you're onto the other world. And I know one thing that comes up with, with surgeons uh, working in the ICU um, is two questions. One is, do you do your own like tracheostomy surgically there? And does that ever come up where there's, um, I remember speaking with one of one of my bosses where he was concerned about that there was conflict between the person who thought the procedure needed to be done and the person doing the procedure. What are your uh, thoughts on that? No, I, I actually disagree with that. I, we do, um, I do my tracheostomies in the ICU at the bedside percutaneously. Uh, I actually have taught now many of the in interventional pulmonologists, and I'm working on the anesthesiologists, how to do these procedures. And I think a surgeon brings a valuable skill set to the bedside of the patient in terms of interventions um, and is well poised to teach that skill set to the non-surgeon critical care provider. I mean, things like tracheostomy tubes, pegs, chest tubes, these are not surgical procedures. These are critical care procedures. 
One of the other questions that I was going to ask you is, I did a nice um, interview with Dr. Lewis Kaplan about acute care surgery, and I was wondering, I still remain confused about the overlap between surgical critical care and acute care surgery. At the hospital I work at now, critical care and acute care surgery are very separate. But obviously, if I'm interviewing people like Dr. Kaplan, there's some relationship there. Yeah, and I know Dr. Kaplan very well. We um, we have also included acute care surgery into our practice model. So in a nutshell, I'm a trauma surgeon, acute care surgeon, and critical care surgeon, where we take uh, a week at a time on the acute care surgical service. And there, it's a little bit separate from critical care in that the acute care surgeon really is the emergency general surgeon. Uh, general surgery, for a variety of reasons, is uh, not commonly practiced the way it used to be in most academic medical centers. And so the patient who presents with an acute general surgical issue, be it appendicitis, perforated viscous, diverticulitis, or necrotizing fasciitis, needs to have ready access to a surgeon. Um, and again, so when you're on for that week and you admit somebody to the intensive care unit, there's still an intensivist on service that yes, week? Yes, yes. Um, and again, will there be discussions between you and that person as to whether or not somebody needs to go back to the OR or the timing of closing an abdomen and things like that? So our, our ICU works as a semi-open model, semi-closed, however, which way you want to look at it, where the role of the acute care surgeon or the trauma surgeon, essentially the non-intensivist, is to determine overall strategies of care, the need for operation, the need for further imaging, etc. The role of the critical care surgeon or critical care provider is physiologic support and resuscitation. So although the two roles are complementary... So ICU management. ICU management. <clears throat> and I remember one of the things I'm seeing at, at my place is it sounds like staffing the acute care surgery can be complex in terms of... Um, who's on to do the consults versus who's on to be doing the surgeries. And it can be complicated in terms of if the acute care surgeon also may have scheduled surgeries. Uh, do you, can you share with us some of your issues with this? The, so yes, to everything you said, those, those do raise complicated issues. And the schedule is really far more complicated than I can ever describe. But uh, we don't schedule elective operations when we are on service. So whether we're in the intensive care unit or on acute care surgery, or on trauma surgery, there are no elective cases scheduled those particular weeks. And so, although you have enough hats already there as a trauma surgeon, acute care surgeon, and an intensivist, you're also an educator. And I wanted to ask you to take the next topic, focusing in on both the FDM and FCCS course at the University of Pennsylvania, and maybe give us a little bit of background about how you got involved. And it seems a very uh, detailed uh, situation at your place right now. And I was very impressed with everything I saw. If you could talk uh, for a few minutes about it. I appreciate it. that. Um, one of my passions has always been education uh, and dissemination of information with the hope that by training other clinicians, not necessarily physicians, but clinicians from all backgrounds, uh, we can improve patient outcome uh, on a much larger scale than I can do alone. Um, so with that in mind, um, one thing I noticed at Penn was that we were very good at teaching trauma and uh, cardiac support, ACLS. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of established courses to teach critical care and concepts of critical care. So was there already... So you were already involved in the ATLS course then right. or something? Is so that right? we, that's exactly right. So the, our all of our education outreach from the Division of Traumatology, which is where I work, is through a 
subdivision, if you will, uh, sub-office within the division called the Office of Life Support Education, the OLSE. And the Office of Life Support Education was established a long time before I joined Penn to teach a TLS and a CLS, both of which were state-mandated courses for a level one trauma center, a TLS, and to provide a conscious sedation certification, uh, a CLS. And these are all part of the Department of Surgery? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so we had the infrastructure to teach these courses. We had uh, secretarial support. We had administrative support. And so when I came along, um, it was fairly easy for me to integrate new courses uh, with very robust uh, support from my division chief, Bill Schwab. Um, and then you were explaining to me that, although I, I haven't taken FCCS at your course, you were going to tell me a little bit about the history of how you got involved with FCCS and FDM. So FCCS was the first course that we brought on. And the reason we did was, again, because I noticed a lack of organized uh, outreach in terms of education for critical care originating from Penn. So what we did is a group of about five or six of us crossing multiple disciplines decided to bring the course on board together. And I think this is really vital. In order to implement courses today, it is vital that you have a multidisciplinary cadre, both to appeal to a multidisciplinary student cohort, and also to ensure that at a very logistical level, there are people available to teach. So this was a decision like after an SCCM meeting, like a few of you met and said, we need to be doing this at Penn or something? Or? Exactly. Not necessarily after an SCCM meeting, but a few of us met at some point and there was some uh, momentum between nurse practitioners, uh, surgeons, anesthesiologists, and internal medicine, critical care, pulmonary critical care, that we all said, we want to do this at Penn. And even though the, the OLSE is, is part of surgery... Obviously, I think from your course, non-surgeons participate in, in the teaching, yes. right? And a lot of was, emergency physicians, or yes. some. But some emergency physicians for disaster management, for FCCS, it's mostly um, pulmonary critical care, anesthesia, us, and uh, nurse practitioner, and also nursing as well, RN. Um, and this was what required support from the administration, is we had to fund the first set of people to go through the course to take the course and then become instructor certified and to bring the course on board. For that, the Department of Surgery was willing to support non-surgeons. And, and the, that was critical. Uh, there's no way we would have been able to implement this course using surgeons only. So it's an investment by the University of Pennsylvania to broaden their ability to, by the specific Department of Surgery. Via the Department of Surgery, exactly right. right. So with that, we were able to uh, offer our first FCCS course about three years ago. And um, again, the first course was geared, we hand chose the participants uh, with the uh, understanding that they would be put through with surgery picking up the bill again, but they would be obligated to then become instructors with us. Was the idea that you've mandated, I know even at my place or other places, they talk about taking that we are going to start by putting all of our nurses who work in ICUs through FCCS or something like that. How were those kinds of decisions made at your place? We chose, um, we chose obviously intensivists at the physician level and nurse practitioners uh, who work in the ICU exclusively. For the nursing, I actually did not. For the nursing, mostly we included nurses who are on the rapid response team, which we can talk about later, uh, because I thought they were going to serve as a very good uh mediary between the demands of floor nursing and the abilities of critical care nursing. They understand both worlds very well. Now you said something that's confusing though because I know FCCS as a course is not designed for intensivists. It's for people who don't have that training. I, what I meant was how did you decide after the initial sort of group of instructors was made what what was going to be the purpose at Penn? Who, who oh, be, I see. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. So yes, the purpose at Penn would then be to outreach to the non-intensivist provider 
who finds himself confronted with a critically ill patient. And we did a couple of things. One is we advertised to neighboring community hospitals who have to deal with critically ill patients, but by and large are staffed with general practitioners, family practitioners, internal medicine, non-critical care trained physicians. Um, In addition to that, we are now utilizing this course as an excellent method to start the fellowship process. We have a fellowship that fills every year for trauma and critical care. Those fellows, two months into their fellowship, um, have to take the FCCS course to level the playing field. So the, the idea is that even if they finished a medicine residency, you want them, you want to have documented that at least the, at the intro level, they understand the basics of um, airway breathing circulation or, 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 <laughs> circulation, or, or ventilator breathing. management. So they, exactly. <laughs> right. um, so in the middle of the night, when they tell me that the peak inspiratory pressures are high, I, you know, they've already troubleshot the ventilator and, uh, and we can get by to more advanced topics. So was that primarily, now did, did medicine also say they wanted some of their residents to go through this? Uh, we're in negotiations with medicine. They, they haven't quite um, utilized it as much as I would have hoped. More, It's still more of a surgical. And what about, you, you were saying from other hospitals, how did that go in terms of people showing up for that? That We had unbelievable support and demand from outside hospitals. The, the farther away we went from Philadelphia, more toward the rural areas, uh, the higher the demand. Uh, we actually had one group on the Jersey Shore that insisted their entire cadre of ICU privileged physicians come through. So again, where you've got a a community hospital where it may be a model where anyone can admit to the ICU, you could make this part of the being mandatory to say, that's fine, you can admit, but now you, even if they're not going to close the ICU and hire intensivists, I think that's fascinating. I would have never guessed that. And and I assume that's still ongoing, right? Your your FCCS teaching? Yeah. So we teach FCCS three to four times per year and uh, about 25 persons per course. And that course always fails. And is uh, that's a one, one day? Two days. Two days, okay. And then again, the, the other part where, where I met you was the, the disaster management course, which obviously given all of the, <laughs> seems like recently large number of international disasters, um, this must have, have gone up in in, uh, in the amount of demand you've had for this. Can you tell a little bit about more of that? So that's a more recent course, right? That's a more, more recent course to us. The course itself is about nine, maybe 10 years old to the society, although it's only about a year and a half old to Penn. Um, And this was a course that we talked about bringing on board, disaster course itself, not necessarily FDM, for a number of years. And we looked around at the various disaster courses that are offered. Uh, What appealed to me about FDM in particular is that it's really the only course centered for the critical care physician. If you look at disasters nationally or internationally and you ask what part of the hospital system will sustain the biggest and most prolonged um, hit or demand. It's going to be the intensive care unit. The e- Everyone thinks about the ED, and most disaster courses talk about pre-hospital and then maybe the arrival phase of the ED and decontamination. These are very sexy topics. But in fact, even if you look at a calamity such as Haiti, the emergency department phase will only last a couple of days and then will go by. The operating room phase may last a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months as evidence in Haiti, but it's the critical care portion of the hospital that is tasked with maintaining these people and recovering these people. So now how do you take a hospital whose ICU will run 80 to 100% occupied at all times and surge it with a disaster that's not going to end in a day or two, may not even end in a week or two, may not end in a month or two. And again, if you look at the really bad disasters going from Bande Aceh with the tsunami to Bam, Iran with the earthquake, more recently 
uh, Haiti, you can see how it's the intensive care unit again and again that is left with cleanup of this disaster. That's what I like about the FDM course. Um, and again, having taken your FDM course, w what's nice about it, and I guess what is one of the challenges is the goal is not to make anyone an expert in any of these particular areas, but to be comfortable that you've looked it up once, you've gone through it briefly, and you know where to look it up again if you hear this is what's coming. Um, I was going to ask you, you two things. One was, I remember when I signed up to take your course, you were actually in Haiti at the time. Yes. And I was wondering if you could take a few minutes and share with us some of your experiences. If if you would, it would be sure, I would be very absolutely. personally grateful to hear that. And second of all, I was wondering if you could tell us what were some of the sort of unforeseen obstacles at your place in setting up the FDM course, some things that you didn't think were going to be difficult that turned out to be. Um, but if you wanted to start with Haiti, that would be, that would be great. Sure. Um, so um, the Haiti trip was uh, actually uh, a pen outreach effort. It wasn't just me. Um, it was, again, a multidisciplinary effort with uh, uh, two anesthesiologists, myself as a trauma general surgeon, um, two operating room personnel, one a scrub tech, one a, a OR nurse, and two um, intensive care, surgical intensive care unit nurses, um, and two orthopedic surgeons. So that was the cadre of uh, personnel that we assembled. We went to Haiti in conjunction with Partners in Health, a group that you know has a distinct presence there, and were asked to serve at their um, hospital in Conj located about 40 or so miles, I guess, northeast of Port-au-Prince itself. We were there for two weeks. So how long after the initial? We got there about two weeks after the... Two weeks after. Two weeks after, okay. roughly, is when we arrived, and we were there for two weeks. So but we there, there was still a need. Oh, yes. We found uh, <laughs> open fractures that had not been uh, reduced uh, or treated uh, two weeks out. We found a tremendous number of guillotine amputations uh, that had not been closed. Uh, the uh, infection rate was phenomenal. Um, were you at a particular did you go to multiple hospitals no just or? one in uh, in this village called Conj, which is where port-au-prince has its flat i'm sorry where which is where um, partners in health has its flagship hospital two operating rooms um it's geared for about 100 or so 20 patients 120 patients or so uh had about 250 patients when we showed oh. up with uh, people laying on the ground in their church that had been converted to an inpatient facility with uh, open wounds open fractures um some with pelvic fractures, uh, severe pelvic fractures. And how, how are you still even two weeks later deciding what to do first or whatever? Can you talk about that? We, you know, we went by the first day and rounded in everybody and um, came up with essentially a triage scheme, which we made up on the spot, um, mostly dealing with um, uh, initially uh, treating fractures that were still open. That was our first priority. After that, we started to deal with the amputation stumps. Uh, we uh, initially tried to uh, debride the stumps with the hope to maintain length as much as possible. Uh, about five, seven days into it, we realized that this is a failing proposition because the debrided stump would simply get reinfected and you have to debride again. You were making no progress whatsoever. And so ultimately, we ended up, um, in many cases, jumping up a joint level, uh, creating a new amputation and then closing it immediately. Uh, which would sacrifice length, but it would preserve limb. So it was a more definitive procedure? Much more definitive procedure. And the age groups must have been, was it primarily y younger people? Uh, well, unfortunately, the, the average life expectancy in Haiti is 55. So 55 mm -hmm. is considered profoundly elderly. And mm -hmm. the reason for that is mostly infectious disease. So given that 55 is elderly, middle age is 30-ish. 
Um, so most of the patients that we treated, the youngest we treated was 18. The oldest we treated was, I think, in their 70s or so. But the vast majority of patients were about uh, 25 or 30. And we actually ended up submitting this as a manuscript to uh, a journal called Disaster. And it's going to be the first reporting um, of its kind looking at the evolution of injuries from the time of event, which it was the Dartmouth team that went there first, uh-huh. to one month out. What did the Dartmouth team do, see, have to deal with? What did the Penn team do, see, have to deal with? And we describe this evolution for future teams. And and um, did you have to bring your own equipment, or did they have equipment that you felt was adequate? Or was- uh, we, we brought... A lot of our own equipment, and turns out they actually had a lot of um, medical equipment, not so much surgical gear. They had plenty of antibiotics, they had plenty of pain medication, etc. Uh, what we brought that was very helpful were external fixators, operating room equipment, uh, things of that nature. And and to me, that sounds like orthopedic surgery, but is that, were you working part and parcel? Were you all, were you all working together as surgeons? Or? Yes. So, I mean, there were, there were the two orthopedic surgeons and myself. There were two operating rooms. Essentially, the orthopedic surgeons were dealing with uh, bone-type injuries with some soft tissue, and I was dealing with the majority of soft tissue injuries. So I was doing a lot of debridement, a lot of skin grafting, very bread-and-butter general surgery, but things that were very, very important to prevent ongoing infection. Did you find that the number of, of cases, was was your t- amount of time there set beforehand or was it that you stayed until sort of things calmed down a little bit? No, or we, we were committed to 14 days in country, uh, which actually at the end of the day ended up being nine or 10 days operating when you factor in travel time. And so we knew that a priori and that's what we went with. And did you feel, um, were things calming down a little bit as you were at the end of your two weeks or was it getting worse or what no was the, the number of the, certainly the number of patients who required surgical intervention was decreasing as we were leaving i think we did some good it's a little bit of a selection bias because that statement's coming from me and i was there but i think we did some good and at the time that we were leaving the at least college was transitioning rather quickly from a uh, recovery phase and i mean that as in ongoing surgical needs to a convalescence phase ongoing now uh, looking at things such as physical therapy and moving these people around and kind of getting getting them back well, I was just reading an article actually in yesterday's New England Journal of Medicine talking about it, and it and it transitions more towards public health issues, right? It starts out as disaster management, and now a year later, it's the cholera epidemic and, and getting the infrastructure back in, right? Yeah, it's exactly right. And, you know, if you see the tent cities in Port-au-Prince, it's not at all surprising that of anything, it'll be a cholera outbreak or something infectious disease. And, th- and that's something that, again, when you taught me the FDM course, it's that the need for for physicians per se is there but it's it's not the number one issue during certainly the acute phase of this it's things like security and bulldozers and and people to keep order so that people like us can even function, right? That's exactly right. And I think that that point is made even more robustly by the teams that deployed to Port-au-Prince itself, where things such as security were vital um, as they were dealing with a disaster. Um, and I thought we could end by letting you talk about, I guess you were talking about the, the future of FDM and maybe to share your experience. If you were talking to a colleague who was going to set up their own FDM course, what were some of the m- mistakes you made that you could share with them so that maybe they could avoid them? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, FDM continues to evolve. Things that FDM needs to address are concepts such as transfer of patients who are severely injured from one hospital to the other. Um, dealing with uh, expanding the uh, critical care capabilities of a hospital to maintain this ongoing surge. FDM currently talks about novel staffing patterns, but it needs to go beyond that and speak about um, 
what what the course calls stuff, which is equipment um, and space. That's right, staff, stuff, and space. That's right? exactly those are three S's of uh, of FDM. So the, the the course will continue to evolve. The challenge of the course is that as physicians in general, we're not experts in disaster management. We're experts in critical care. We're experts in trauma, but really the disaster management aspect is not something we learn. And so. Getting a cadre of instructors together uh, can be difficult and presents a pretty good opportunity to partner with the public health service in the United States. If I had to do something over again, that's probably what I would do. I would tap into that as a resource and bring those people on board as instructors. I thought we'd talk about your recent article focusing on uh, MET teams and your experience with them at the University of Pennsylvania, if you'd like to talk a little bit about, about your manuscript and some of the things you learned in creating it. Oh, yeah, thank you. So these comments certainly are going to be controversial, <laughs> but I'll say from the get-go that I'm a very strong supporter of the uh, concept of medical emergency teams or rapid response teams. Um, when I first joined Penn six years ago, it was striking to me what the incidence of cardiac arrest was in the hospital. And, and Penn, I think, is a pretty good hospital. I work there with a lot of pride, but we found that probably about 160 or so codes were occurring on a uh, annual basis, something something in that neighborhood. Realizing that the probability of survival following cardiac arrest is about 15%, this was a lot of patients, many of whom may have uh, had a uh, preventable event. So we went about and instituted the medical emergency team, again, working in a multidisciplinary concept with ICU-trained um, nursing, uh, pharmacy, and uh, ICU-level physicians to try to see if we could improve on this by applying early therapies before the patient arrives in the ICU. Our ICU is a lot like many other hospitals' ICUs. It is always full. So putting in a bed request for someone who's deteriorating is not sufficient. That patient may not show up for many, many hours. And as the uh, MET concept evolved, we looked at not just getting the clinical physicians, clinical personnel to the bedside quickly, but rather what would they do when they got there? And we started measuring outcomes. So we, the first thing we did was time to antibiotic administration as a function of impacting on septic shock. What we found was that on median, on average, the time to antibiotic administration as a stat dose was over three hours. Big hospital, big pharmacy, complicated infrastructure. The MET was able to bypass a lot of systems. We put a pharmacist on the service, a lot of verbal orders, 58 minutes. Now, and that's timed as time from order administration to drug in the vein. So we lowered that down. The next thing we did is we looked at and asked, is the antibiotic that's being administered effective? And what we found was it was only 56% effective. When the physicians chose the antibiotic, there was a good chance they chose the wrong antibiotic because they always chose the same antibiotic. So we implemented a uh, algorithm to control what antibiotics they would get. Antibiotic efficacy went from 56% to 91%. The next thing we did kind of simultaneously, these weren't really stepwise, was asked the question, are we impacting negatively on our own resident and fellow education? Is the MET team usurping control? And ultimately, it'll be a failure because we would have graduated people who have no idea how to, how to um, resuscitate. Right, so this is a big issue at academic medical centers. Absolutely. The, the concept here is, just to, to back it up, is 
what it used to be when you were in residency was you've taken the most junior person and they're there at the bedside in a patient who has a horrible crisis. And there are senior people that exist, but they're not there. Suddenly, you're turning that model upside down and putting somewhat senior people, depending on how the model's organized, quickly there. And so the question you're asking is, does that mean in a teaching institution that the junior person either perceives they're losing their education or are actually losing an education? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And because as soon as that perception is there, whether it's reality-based or not, they will stop calling the MET team. And you're right back where you started from because the system will not be activated and everything will fall apart. And, and, the, and the complex issue for people like you, trying to, as part of a leadership of a place like UPenn, is it, it can't be a balance anymore between patient safety and education. It has to be patient safety. Absolutely. And so then the question is, but we can't throw away education. We still need to be creating physicians as part of a mission, right? That's exactly right. That is absolutely correct. And so we did a survey study uh, in a blinded fashion, and we compared uh, residents versus nurses, and then we compared surgical nurses versus medical nurses, and medical residents versus surgical residents. So we kind of tried to drill down on this by discipline. Uh, and, and in a nutshell, what we found was that uh, nurses, uh, everyone agreed off the cuff that rapid response improved patient safety. Everyone said that. Everyone agreed that if they were uh, hospitalized, they would want to be in a hospital that had a rapid response team. Nurses believe that a little bit more strongly than physicians. That's maybe to be expected given that they are the frontline personnel. They see the patient deteriorating and are stuck there with inability to leave. The physician sees it a little bit more removed. But nonetheless, as a concept, we had buy-in. What we then found was that the medical residents supported this concept a bit more so than the surgical residents. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that might be. Surgical residency is much longer uh, than medical medical residency, so perhaps it has something to do with that. The medicine residents uh, from the Department of Medicine had a lot more education on patient safety, so perhaps perhaps they perceived the worth of an MET more so than the surgical residents. And, and our paper kind of talks about other uh, possibilities, but what was very important is that nobody, either nursing or residents as a whole or by discipline perceived a decrease in either skill acquisition or knowledge acquisition. So we were not hurting these people. Um, And I think the reason we did that was because our MET is designed such that it is an automatic call out to the primary team and the MET specifically does not usurp control of the patient's um, uh, care. It's done in collaboration with the primary team. And so the education component and the uh, procedural component of resident education is maintained. Well, Dr. Sarani, this has really been a wonderful opportunity. And and again, you have lots of other topics that I could talk to you about, and I hope to arrange other podcasts with you in the future. For the listeners, the particular manuscript that I read that I enjoyed about Met Teams was published in Critical Care and Medicine. It was called Resident and RN Perceptions of the Impact of a Medical Emergency Team on Education and Patient Safety in an Academic Medical Center. This was published in Critical Care Medicine 2009, volume 37, pages 3091 to 3096. We've been speaking with Dr. Babak Sarani. He's an assistant professor of surgery and the director, the medical director of the surgical rapid response team at the University of Pennsylvania, where he works as a trauma surgeon, acute care surgeon, and surgical intensivist at the hospital for the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarani, for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website, at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. 
For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Ensure that every member of your staff who comes in contact with critically ill patients has the confidence and skills to treat those patients effectively. Bring SCCM's staff training courses on initial critical care and disaster management to your institution. Ask to speak to the SCCM Hospital Relations Manager for details about the fundamental critical care support, pediatric fundamental critical care support, or fundamental disaster management courses. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.